Well, tonight is testimony night, and my testimony is a little different than most people's testimony. Uh, I was the uh, altar boy in the Catholic Church. <laughs> no, I, I really, the reason I went to prison, I, they, they tell me it was for a murder charge, but the reason I actually went, I was caught in a Methodist church claiming to be Pentecostal. <laughs> Amen. How many of you know that Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world? Yeah. Somebody's already asked me, said, Bill, you going to be up there doing this tonight? I said, no, that's meth. <laughs> that's meth makes you do that. These are pain pills. And uh, so I, I told Brother Roy, Brother Bob, over at the hospital, I said, you know, when I get up to preach tonight, I'm going to be a little bit closer to heaven because I'm going to be high. <laughs> Amen. But I'm not. I, I took one of the pain pills, and they gave me some morphine over in the hospital. But I'm all right. I'm down and ready to go. Amen. <laughs> Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for another wonderful week here. And thank you, Lord, for those that's been saved and those that's uh, come forward and perhaps recommitted their life to serving you. And, Lord, I pray that uh, this revival does not end tonight. It should start tonight. Uh, and, Lord, I just ask you to continue to move and bless this church. And, Father, just I thank you for all that's happened this week. I even thank you for being sick because I know you're the great healer. And, Lord, I ask you to touch my body and just go ahead and heal it. And uh, we'll give you honor, glory, and praise. Everything you do, in Jesus' name, amen. My testimony is a testimony of hope. It's exactly what it is. It's a testimony of hope. How many of you have someone that you've prayed for for quite a while and you've seen no results? Well, let me share this with you. My mom and dad prayed for me every day for 40 years years, and the more they prayed, the worse I got. If anybody ever had a reason to pray in reverse, it was them, but they didn't. They stayed faithful to God, and God stayed faithful to them. You see, we have to realize that God doesn't own a Rolex or a Timex. He don't live on our 24-hour timetable. You may not even be here when your prayer is answered, but I assure you one thing. If you'll stay faithful to God in your prayers, trust Him, those prayers will be answered. Amen? My life started off on the wrong track at a very early age. I was raised on a little farm. We lived so far out in the country, we had to go toward town to go hunting. We didn't have a John Deere tractor with a six-speed Allison transmission in it, computerized planters, air-conditioned cab, AM, FM stereo, cassette player, four-wheel drive, and power steer. We had two old mules. They had four-speed, G-Haw, wool and gold. <laughs> And at six years old, I was out in the field plowing one of those mules. We were so poor. Somebody asked me one time, said, Bro Bill, how poor was y'all? I said, well, when we spelt the word poor, there were 12 zeros between the P and the R. 
we were poor. But we had a family that loved each other. Amen. And, and today, that's something very rarely seen. We eat together. We didn't have cell phones, but if our telephone, once we got one, once it rang, my dad would say, just keep your seat. We're going to eat supper. And if they want us bad enough, they'll call back. Amen. Now, we get telemarketers calling us between 4.30 and 7.30 because it's supper time. That's why they call at that time. You know, but at six years old, I experienced one of the worst days of my life. My mom got me up real early that morning, put on my cleanest pair of old ragged overalls, and I had two pairs. It was hand-me-downs from a first cousin. She walked me down to the side of the little dirt road that we lived on, and as we stood there talking, suddenly a big yellow monster come up over the hill ran right down in front of us, stopped, opened his mouth, and my mother shoved me in. <laughs> One of the worst days of my life, I had to start school. When I got to school, walked in my assigned classroom, every student in there began to laugh at me and call me names like Ragman and Crooked Toes and something like that because, you see, my family was so poor they couldn't afford to buy me a pair of shoes to wear to school. Teacher came in, called the class to order. We said, uh, pledge allegiance to the flag. We said the Lord's Prayer. And then we stood in a circle, held hands, and sang a little song that said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I didn't believe Jesus loved me. How could he possibly love a kid that everybody's laughing at? I made it through that horrifying day, got on that bus, started home, thinking that no one on earth loved me. But on my way home, I got to thinking, you know, my mom said she'd meet me at the bus stop. And I'll be able to tell her how all the kids had laughed and made fun of me. And she'll probably put her arm around me and give me a big old hug and say, son, I'm sorry those kids laughed at you. And I'm sorry that your dad and I don't have enough money to buy you a pair of shoes, but I want you to know your mama loves you. I took comfort in that. I got off that bus. My mom was waiting there for me. I was crying. She asked me what was wrong, and I tried as best I could as a six-year-old boy to tell my mama how everybody had laughed at me and made fun of me all day. But apparently I didn't do a very good job because she just grabbed me by the arm and said, hush that crying. Come on, we got work to do. Those kids weren't laughing at you. It's your imagination. That moment in my life, folks, I didn't think anybody on earth loved me. I buried that hurt deep inside, but it didn't stay very buried very long. At eight years old, I was in serious trouble with the law. At 12 years old, I got up one morning, found something on my chest, recognized it was hair, realized I was a man, and I left home only to find out after one night on the streets with no place to sleep, nothing to eat, or anyone to protect or comfort me, that what I thought was hair turned out to be blanket fuzz. <laughs> you're not a man at 12 years old. You got no business leaving home. And if you're smart like I think you are, young people, 
you'll stay home and mom and dad runs you off. Because there's a real world outside these church doors. And that world is controlled by Satan. And he has one purpose. That's to devour you and to destroy you. And he'll do it in many ways. At age 13, I was a hardcore gang member. And when I say hardcore, I'm not talking about the ones you see sitting up here at the Jack's hamburger stand on Friday night on the tailgate of a pickup truck. We did everything back then the boys in the hoods do today, but Hollywood had not figured out they could make money on making movies and glorifying gang lives to entice our young people to get involved. Do you realize there's over two and a half million gang members in America today? No wonder we're afraid to come out of our house and walk down the street. I got out of the gang by a judge giving me a choice, go in the military or go to prison. Now, I heard a rumor you got paid to be in the military. I knew you didn't get paid to be in prison, so I chose the military, served my country, came home from overseas, met a beautiful lady, fell in love, and we got married. I didn't have an education at that time. I, I had only finished the seventh grade. And so I couldn't find a good paying job. I found a, a, a job that I fell in love with driving a truck, but I was only making two and a half cents a mile, driving 4,000 miles a week, and that computes out to about $100 a week. Now, the most money I'd ever made, honestly, in my life was in the military, and that was $78 a month. Now I'm making $100 a week. You can imagine what my little finite mind was thinking. I'll be able to retire in five years, buy me a house on the lake, a new Ranger bass boat, two of them ski rocket, ski doo deals, a brand-new Harley Davis, and a four-wheel drive jacked-up pickup truck with the whip antenna on the back. My wife and I had managed to get us a little 10-foot wide, 42-foot long mobile home. I came in off a long trip, been gone about six weeks, thinking, you know, I'm about ready to retire. I walked in the living room of that little mobile home, asked my wife how much money we had. She said $20, and we were a house payment and a car payment behind. But that wasn't unusual because we'd been there before. Only this time, the pain came. When I looked over in the corner of the living room of that little mobile home and there sat my beautiful six-year-old daughter about to have to start to school, and I realized that all her clothes were hand-me-downs and she had no shoes to wear. Every bit of the pain that I felt in the first grade came crashing in around my heart, and I couldn't stand the thought of my daughter being belittled and humiliated like I was. I had to do something, and I had to do it quick. Now, I don't have time to get into all the details how I did it, but I got involved with organized crime. I spent 15 years of my life as an associate to a New York mob family. During that 15 years, I was shot twice, cut open a couple of times, stabbed a couple of times, five assassination attempts made on my life, Two homes burned completely to the ground. My son kidnapped, and my wife on Mother's Day weekend of 1979 was brutally assassinated. Not because she was involved in my business, but because they couldn't get to me, so they got to her. 
I worked my way up and became the head of a five-state prostitution ring, most degrading lifestyle you can possibly live in. 1974, I had an opportunity to take over a little two-state drug operation. I jumped at that opportunity because I, like maybe some of you, thought I could make a lot of money in the drug business. You see a lot of money in the drug business, but it's how much you keep that counts. And in the end, I assure you, you will not keep anything. When I was arrested on the first-degree murder charge, they confiscated everything I had. I didn't have enough money to even buy a Coca-Cola because they locked all my bank accounts down, everything. But I took over that little drug operation in 1974. By October of 1975, we had expanded that drug operation to we were dealing in every state east of the Mississippi. With such rapid expansion, obviously I made some drug dealers mad. The first assassination attempt was made on my life in October of 1975 when I was shot through the back. Bullet went clean through my body. I was rushed to the hospital, not knowing if I was going to live or die, bleeding and hurting. My mom and dad had been called. They come running into the emergency room. They took me by the hand. They looked me right in the windows of my soul. And for the first time in my life, I heard my mom and dad say words I'd never heard them say before when they said, son, I love you. Now, before you judge my mom and dad, let me say this. No one could have better parents than I had. My mom and dad were devout Christians, and, and they lived what they believed. No one could have had better parents. I was just a rebellious kid that had been hurt very seriously in school. I don't believe there's a greater force on this earth other than divine power than the three little words, I love you. And if you think I'm kidding you, I want you to turn to the person sitting next to your husbands. Make sure you turn to your wife. <laughs> and I want you to look them right in the wonders of her soul and say to them, I love you. Would you do that right now? Now, you see the joy those three words bring. Some of you hadn't smiled that big in years. <laughs> and let me say this, guys. Don't you think it's time we get off our horse of muncho? And when our wives or our children or anybody says, I love you, instead of saying, me too. Let me ask you a question. How do they know whether you're saying, I love you too, or <laughs> I love me too. Don't you think, listen, I've lost three wives. My first wife was murdered. My second wife died with pneumonia. And my third wife died with a massive heart attack. I know what it's like to lose a spouse. Start saying, I love you. We men are supposed to be the head of our household. Act like it. Amen. Let me say this 
Guys, if, if you think Ajax will wash your moncho off, you didn't have any. Start telling our family, I love you instead of me too. Oh, you'd be surprised what will happen around the house. Yeah. Some of you hadn't told your family I love you in years. That's why some of our young people go astray like they do. They're searching, as the song says, for love in all the wrong places. Love always should start at home. I got out of the hospital, overcome a gunshot wound, and settled the issue as who was going to be leader of the drug gang. It was going to be me. By 1978, we were operating in every state in the continental United States, Canada, South America, and Europe. I'd become an international drug dealer. I thought I was some kind of God. My mom and dad came down to Tampa, Florida to visit me one day. My mom tried to tell me about Jesus. I physically threw her out of my house. I pointed my finger at her standing on the front porch. I said, Mama, if the only reason you and Dad want to come down here to talk to me about God, don't you bother to come back because I don't need God. I am God. That's how arrogant I had become. Now, I knew because my mom and dad took me to church as a child, I knew that there was somebody called God. But my version of God was some white-headed guy that sets off in outer space, looks a lot like Charleston Heston, and when he got tired of doing, are you doing what you're doing, he'd snap you away and that'd be the end of it. As I've already told you, my mom and dad prayed for 40 years. Never saw any results. In October 1980, my empire came crashing to the ground when I was arrested on a first-degree murder charge. I was told I would die in the electric chair, and I lived under that for two years. But I'd forgotten I had a praying mom and daddy. And God decided to answer their prayer September the 24th, 1982. I thank God today that my mom and dad lived long enough that they got to travel with me for five years. And in 1988, they were killed in a car wreck instantly. Here's the deal. They had always told everybody, when we die, we're going to die together. Because we don't want, they've been married 57 years. They said, we don't want to leave one of them behind and have them grieve herself to death. And that young man that hit them at almost 90 miles an hour, T-boned them, had one little scratch right there. When I was called to the hospital and found out my mom and dad had both been killed, I started back to see them. You see, they had spent the day with me that day. We had a big crusade planned that weekend. Mom and Dad was all excited about it. They were planning on going. They got up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, hugged my neck, gave me a kiss on the cheek, and said, Son, we love you, and we'll see you Sunday morning. Little did they realize, 20 minutes later, they'd be in the everlasting presence of Jesus Christ.
I asked the deputy who hit him. He told me. I went down to the emergency room, and the young man was laying there on the bed, and his mother was standing there, and she knew me when. When I walked in that emergency room, she literally turned white. I mean, she was shaking. I walked over and I said, son, are you hurt? He said, no, sir, all I got is a little scratch right up there. I said, well, let me say this. My mom and dad is dead. They're in heaven. Where would you be if you were back in the morgue? He said, I, I, I'm afraid I'd be in hell. I led that young man who just killed my mom and daddy in a car wreck. I led him to the Lord there in the emergency room. When we got through praying, I looked over at his mom. She's standing there with tears running down her cheek. I said, where would you be? She said, I'd be in hell too. I led her to the Lord. Let me tell you something, folks. It doesn't matter how much pain you feel, you can still love people that have hurt you and tore your life apart. You can still love them and forgive them and they might get saved if you talk to them about Jesus. But there I was in prison, supposed to die in the electric chair. I called my attorneys. I said, listen, I don't like it in here. You call some of those high officials that we rub shoulders with, and you tell them I want out, and I want out now. They called me back in two days, told me they had a judge that had agreed to vacate my sentence September 24, 1982. I got up that morning, rolled my bag, sat down expecting to be released from prison, and by 6 p.m., I realized I'm not getting out. I went up to the dorm where the phones were, called my attorneys, and the news I got was not what I wanted to hear. They told me that the judge that had agreed to vacate my sentence was pulled off of my case that morning. And a new judge put on, and he said if he had his say-so about it, I'd die in the electric chair. There's no way he's going to let me out of prison. How many of you know that wasn't what I wanted to hear? Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to prison, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. Prison life is a roller coaster ride. One day you're up, and the next day you're down. And when you're down, there's always a smart mouth got something to say. When I jammed that phone down on the receiver, I determined in my mind that the next person that spoke to me, I was going to try my best to kill him. After all, what are they going to do? Lock me up? I'm already in prison. Electrocute me twice. I stormed out of that dormitory, going across the prison compound like any heathen. I was kicking rocks and cussing God. And to my surprise, God was the next person that spoke to me. And ladies and gentlemen, you can't kill him. They tried one time, but he wouldn't stay dead. Thank God. He spoke to my heart and he said, Bill, You've had everything the world has to offer. And look where it got you. Now, if you'll turn your life over to me, I'll set you free. 
I wish I could tell you right here, folks, that a Holy Ghost bolt of lightning came out of the sky, hit me in the top of the head, little demons went running in every direction. <laughs> but it didn't happen like that. The only thing I can tell you is suddenly I had an urge to go to the chapel. I went up to, I didn't want to go. I didn't even like the people that went to the chapel. But I had this drawing urge, so I went. I didn't go in the sanctuary. I went in the library, and laying on a table in that prison library was a little brown Gideon Testament like I hold in my hand. I was drawn to it. I picked it up. The only thing I knew about the Bible was John 3.16. And I didn't know the words, just the numbers, and I know now that God was dealing with me the week before because I was watching a football game on television and some guy was standing behind the goalpost holding up a sign that said, John 3.16. Now, I thought it was odds, you know, on the game, but on John, the odds of 3.16, he's going to win. But I remembered I had to memorize that little verse of Scripture in Sunday school. So I found John 3.16 in that little Gideon Testament. And I read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, when you're in prison, supposed to die in an electric chair, and you pick a little book up that tells you you can live forever, I don't care how bad you think you are, it gets your attention. It got mine. I said, God, if you're real, give me something worth living for instantly. I mean, in the twinkling of an eye, he inspired me to commit a crime. I stole that little Gideon Testament out of the prison library. <laughs> I kept it hid in my cell for about 30 days. And in that, at the end of about 30 days, the meanest sergeant in the prison came into my cell, screamed those words that sent cold chills up in my spine. Shake down. I knew I was in trouble because in the state of Florida, unless they've changed the law, if they catch contraband in your cell, you get five years straight up, no questions asked. I knew with me being who I was, I'd get 25 years. That sergeant grabbed my mattress, threw it against the wall. My little Bible fell out on the ground, on the floor. He picked it up and he thumbed through it. And he said, say, why do you have your Bible hid? Now, I was faced with a major issue here, folks. I'd only been saved for about 30 days. I couldn't even walk spiritually. I still cradled in the ever-loving arms of Jesus. Here's how you know you're real. You cannot deliberately sin without the Holy Ghost of God Convicting you of it before you ever do it. Yeah. That's how you know you're real. But I was like some mature Christians <laughs> when they're facing trouble. <laughs> Y'all can look spiritual if you want to, but I had a big old lie made up. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, Bill, 
You're a reasonably intelligent guy. How do you think he got all those stripes on his shoulder by being stupid? You best tell him the truth. And so I decided to do what the Holy Ghost said. And I looked at that mean sergeant. I said, Sergeant, I'm going to be honest with you. I stole that little Bible out of the prison library. He looked at me kind of strange. He said, say, as he handed the Bible to me, don't you know that's what them Gideons put them in there for, for you guys to take. I said, well, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I don't have to go to lockup now. I can carry my Bible anywhere I want. The murder charge was dropped to manslaughter, the death penalty to five years, and I did one year on that five. But that gave me the best year of my life because I studied the Word of God. Intently studied it. I sent off, got every kind of Bible study course I could get. And on June the 29th, I had a parole hearing. I had one the first week of January, but the parole board, they had TV cameras set up. My mom and dad drove in on the parking lot, and they was all over them. They walked in the parole room, the parole board said, no way, set it off for another year. We won't even hear it. I got mad with God. How many of y'all ever been mad with God? Yeah, some of you lying about it, but that's all right. <laughs> God will forgive you. I got mad with God because, you see, I read Mark 11, 23, and 24, and I'm going to give you the same revised version, large print, red letter edition, but it says something to this effect. You can say to this mountain, be thy removed, be thy cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but believe that those things which you say shall come to pass. You shall have whatsoever you say it. When you pray, verse 24 says, Believe that you receive them and you shall, not might, shall have them. Well, I'm standing on that promise. How many of you know that's a promise of God? The Bible is full of promises. The problem is we try to stand on them when we hadn't read the instructions. I was turned down. I was mad with God. The Holy Spirit said, Bill, read verse 25 and 26. You read the promise but didn't read the instructions where it says, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that word any incorporates you. You got to forgive you. I read that. When you stand praying, if you have aught against any, forgive so that your Father, which is in heaven, will forgive you of your trespasses. 26 says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, will forgive you. I realize I was mad at everybody. I started writing people, calling people, asking them to forgive me. And you know, God doesn't wait forever. When you truly believe what his word says and you name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it, 
You get it. In March 1983, they called me up, my classification officer. He said, say, you've not been in here long enough to qualify for a parole, and you've already had one parole here, and I just got a call from Tallahassee. You've got another parole here June 29th. I said, yes, sir, I'm going home on parole. He said, how do you know? I said, Jesus told me. Would you believe he suggested I get psychiatric evaluation? <laughs> he did. June 29th rolled around. The parole board said, we see no reason to keep this man incarcerated any longer. We'll release him July the 12th, 1983, exactly one year to the day that I entered the Florida prison system to do that five years, I walked out of that prison. I walked out of that prison. I had a little Gideon Testament in my back pocket and three degrees. Told you I sent on got all them Bible study courses. I had a BA degree, a DDHG, and an LLDC. And some of you look like you don't know what that means. It means born again, double dose of Holy Ghost, and a long-legged devil chaser. Because <laughs> in March of 1983, I was sitting on the front row of the chapel at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody in that chapel but me. Have you ever been somewhere by yourself, maybe out in the woods or something, and all of a sudden you feel like somebody's there with you? Well, it was so real to me, I got up and looked around to see if anybody had come in the chapel. But when I sat back down, now I've never heard the audible voice of God. I, I envy these guys that's always talking to God audibly. But oh, how many times has he spoke to my heart's ear? And when I sat down, I really felt the arm of God go around my shoulder. And he whispered in my heart's ear, Bill, I want you to go all over this nation. I want you to tell people about my love and my forgiveness. And you let them know I didn't work up a sweat to save you. I got no problem saving them. I said, God, I'll go wherever you open the door. But there's two things I don't want to do. You know most Christians aren't honest with God. Come on now. I said, there, I'll go anywhere you open the door, but there's two things I don't want to do. I don't want to beg for money, and I don't want to beg for speaking engagements. He said, you go, and I'll supply. And I made God two promises. I promised him that I'd never ask the pastor how big his church is. And I promised him I would always go on a love offering basis. I have a motto I live by. No church too small, no love offering too large. <laughs> and for 36 and a half years, I've crisscrossed this nation preaching this gospel 50 weeks out of the year. I've never asked a pastor how big his church was, and I've never set a price to go. Because when you trust God, you don't have to worry about it. You just don't have to worry. 
I have a lot of evangelists ask me, he said, Bill, why do you go to them little churches? I don't go to no church that don't run 250. I said, well, what do you do? Preach about five revivals a year. If you don't go to a church that runs 250 or more, you just eliminated about 90% of all the churches in America. I go wherever God opens the door. You see, I don't believe there's such a thing as a small church in the kingdom of God. There's some got a lot more sinners in them than others, but they're all level ground. I walked out of that prison July the 12th, 1983, preached my first revival two days after I got out of prison. And I've been in it full time ever since. I've never regretted one minute of it, never looked back, never thought about going back to that life. And I know some of you are thinking right here, well, how'd you get out of organized crime? I was never a member. I was an associate. I, I, I hear a lot of guys, well, I was a made man. Yeah, I was in the mafia. I was made. And you got blue eyes and blonde hair. <laughs> I want to rip his bottom lip off because <laughs> I know he's lying. You have to have Sicilian blood in your bloodline to be a made man in the mafia. And you have to have Italian blood just to get in. I don't have any Italian blood or Sicilian blood. I'm a red-blooded American. Born again. I got a royal transfusion in the prison. Yeah, I got Emmanuel's blood runs in my veins. Yeah. Uh, little nurse over in the hospital today, I thought she's going to draw all of it out in the time she got through. <laughs> but let me say this, folks. The first 10 years I was in ministry, it wasn't going anywhere. It was stagnant. I was getting bookings, man. I stayed booked all year long. But how many of you have been on a job where you realize this job is not going anywhere? And I don't call ministry a job. I call it a calling. If you ain't called, you won't last. I know ain't's not good English, but it's good preaching. <laughs> I fell on my knees in December of 1993 and I began to pray, God, I know that I know you call me to be an evangelist, but this ministry is not going anywhere. And I know there's nothing wrong with you, so there has to be something wrong with me. Show me what it is. It took two days. My phone rang. It was a man named Reno on the other end. He was in a restaurant right up the street, and he wanted to talk to me. My blood turned to ice water. I stuck a nine millimeter with a 15 round clip in my belt. My intentions was to blow this man away. I was going to empty 15 rounds in his face, spit on him and walk out and no one would hold me guilty. That's what the devil said. 
He said, kill him. You have every right. I walked in that restaurant. There's a little mom and pa restaurant. There wasn't no bigger in this section over here. Only had about six, seven tables in it. I walked in there, sat in the very back. I walked back to that table, Satan screaming with deafening tones, kill him right now. He spoke first. He said, Bill, we go a long ways back. I said, yeah, we sure do. And we did. I trusted this man with my life. He had put his, literally put his life on the line several times for mine. I trusted him unquestionably. Satan said, kill him. You have every right. The Holy Spirit said, you got to forgive him if you want your ministry to grow. I thank God that I'm led by the Holy Spirit. I got up and walked around that table face to face with the man that set up the assassination of my wife. And when he and his bodyguard got caught for other crimes, they found out that he was a lieutenant in my drug organization and it was, let's make a deal time. You testified that Say gave you the orders. We'll send him to the electric chair to put you on the protective witness program. Satan said, you have every right to kill him. And I walked around that table. I looked him squarely in the eyes. I reached up and got him by the shoulders and I pulled him next to me. I said, Reno, I forgive you. And through Jesus Christ, I love you. And Jesus loves you. And if you'll ask him, he'll forgive you. And you won't have to go to hell and fry like bacon for eternity. And I, I'll see you in heaven one day. And I walked out of that restaurant. I don't believe my feet were touching the floor. That was in December of 93. In February of 94, I spoke at an evangelism conference. I spoke for 17 minutes. I had 20. How many evangelists you know that can go 17 minutes? But I made up my mind I'm not going overtime because every speaker before me went overtime. I booked 23 revivals when we dismissed for lunch before I ever left my seat. God is on the throne, folks. If we'll do what his word says do, I guarantee you, you'll get your prayers answered. You see, I found the key to the kingdom of God. Jesus said it himself, the kingdom of God is within man. Right. Now think about it. That is a profound statement. Think about it. The kingdom of God is within us? Well, how do we unlock it? Forgiveness. Do you realize Jesus talked more about forgiveness and unforgiveness than any other subject in the New Testament? It is vital that we forgive. 
And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, brother, say you don't know what they did to me. My answer to that is obviously you don't know what they did to Jesus. As he took his dying breath, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. He would not die with unforgiveness in his heart. You and I cannot live the joyful, abundant Christian life that God promised us in his word when we've got unforgiveness in our hearts. Some of you have to forgive yourself. Some of you perhaps need to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you for the way you've been living, for things you've been doing. But the key that opens the kingdom of God is forgiveness. And I know what some of you are thinking because I've already told you I can hear what you think. Some of you are thinking, well, brother, say, uh, I've heard all my life that if you can't forget it, you haven't forgiven it. How many of y'all be honest? How many of y'all heard that? How many of you know that's a lie belts out of the bellies of hell that Satan uses to put you right back under bondage. No place in the Word of God does it say you have to forget it. As a matter of fact, it says just the opposite over in Revelation. It says, I saw them talking about the saints overcome him, talking about Satan by the blood of the lamb. That's how you get saved. And by the word of your testimony, that's how you stay victorious, sharing your testimony. Now, if you forgot everything that happened to you, how would you have a testimony? You know, the Bible is very easy to understand if you use common sense and don't try to complicate it. Well, Dr. Flip-Flop, I read his book, yep, and that's his opinion. Folks, it's time we realize that the Word of God is true. And if we'll just believe it and do it, whatever he tells us to do, do it. You remember when Mary told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. I think I'll preach a message on that sometime. <laughs> whatever he tells you to do, do it. I found the key to the kingdom of God. And some of you need to find that key tonight. And if you'll just submit to the Holy Spirit and bring that unforgiveness to the altar, put it under the blood of Jesus, I assure you, you will walk out of here and get the best night's sleep you've had in a long time. Let's bow our heads. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking around. I wonder how many of you would just be honest with yourself and God. Well, God already knows anyway. But just be honest with yourself. How many of you would say, Brother Bill, you made me realize I do have some unforgiveness in my heart. Would you look up at me right now? God bless you. God bless you. All around the sanctuary, see why we need to know about forgiveness and what the Bible says about it? Heads about one more time. How many of you, well, again, be honest with God and honest with yourself. Say, Brother Bill, 
I'm not living for Jesus. I'm a Christian, and I know that, but I'm not living for Jesus like I know I should. Would you look up at me right now? God bless you. All around the sanctuary again. I challenge you tonight. Bring that unforgiveness to Calvary. And those of you that know you're not living for Jesus like you should, you need to run to this altar tonight and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and take up residence in your home and in your heart and be your Savior. Because if you're not living for Him, you must be living for Satan. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you right now to move in a special way. You've already touched the hearts. They've opened their eyes and been honest with you. Now, Lord, I ask that you allow them to be honest and come to the altar tonight and get rid of whatever it is in their life they need to get rid of. In Jesus' name, amen.